commitment, dedication, success. Copland, Keebler, and Wallace. The most trusted name in executive search and consulting welcomes you to the KKNW podcast, where we delve deep into the not-so-simple art of hospitality. And now here's your host, award-winning journalist, compelling storyteller, and video strategist, Corey Saban. And welcome to another edition of the Copland, Keebler, and Wallace Leadership Podcast. Today, I am joined by Kurt Keebler, one of the name partners in the firm, a true thought leader, and a person who was on the road so much seeing everything at every club who was in tune with all the latest trends and happenings. Kurt, it's so great to be with you. Hello, Corey. Nice to be with you as well, and nice that I'm actually able to talk to you directly from my office for a change. That is a change. I mean, no one spends more time in a Delta lounge than you do. <laughs> and they take good care of me, too. I <laughs> and I'm sure they do. Well, you know, speaking of that, you work with a large number of search committees each year. And looking at all of the different trends and all of the different types of clubs, yacht clubs, city clubs, country clubs with residents, what do you think makes a good search committee? You know, great question. Uh, first, it, I believe, starts with having the right size search committee. And I think as we have gone through and done as many of these as we have over time, you know, I've done everything from uh, a one-person benevolent dictator search committee to, I think I had 15 on one search committee. And, you know, like so many things that we do in the club industry, more isn't always better. And simply uh, trying to get our calendar synchronized can be one of the biggest challenges I have working with a, a search committee. So the, the more involved, the more challenging that often gets. Ideally, we like five or seven on a search committee, and probably more often than not, I've got seven. We need a very good chair who helps to ensure that we've got good focus on process, because without process, it's really hard to get to the end game ultimate decision, and then the, the both he or she and the, the other <clears throat> four or six members of a five or seven person search committee, really a little bit larger, like seven, helps to ensure that we have good representation of demographic perspectives from within the membership, not to be advocating for themselves on behalf of the golfers or the tennis players or the men or the women or the younger or the older, but just good objective judgments from different vantage points making and, and committing to making a good, thoughtful, as best we can, objective decision in the end. So good, good objective thinkers balancing the, the uh, demographics of the club. You know, too often still, Corey, the, the named member who can serve on board or on committees, if that's how your bylaws are structured, is still, you know, 90% male. So oftentimes we end up with boards that are trying to reflect the, the uh, named member population in the club, and then we end up with 90 or 100% of the search committee male. That isn't reflective of the actual users of the club in most cases. So it's, got, it's just got to be a good balancing act there with objective thinkers. 
You know, it's interesting. You mentioned benevolent dictator. You mentioned five to seven people, and you mentioned uh, thinkers. What are the characteristics that you would advise that make up the search committee when they're looking for people to join? And how do you tell somebody that maybe doesn't have that characteristic that, hey, this might not be for you? <laughs> well, fortunately, I don't have to be the one to tell them that. That's usually the, uh, the club president or the search chair. And, and it's, it, again, is a little bit reflective of what we see around the country. Some clubs have you know, a boatload of hands being raised saying, I would like to serve on the search committee. Other clubs, it's somewhat like pulling teeth to find anybody who wants to serve on any committee at times. So we see you know, both extremes and everything in between. I think, as, as always, it's uh, if you've got, again, good criteria and are able to articulate to somebody who doesn't get selected that, you know, here's what we were thinking. And again, demographically representative of the club, which, again, ideally, if we could find clear objective thinkers that might represent past presidents and clear objective thinkers who might represent families who use uh, active golf, clear objective thinkers who are men, clear objective thinkers who are women, you know, articulating that makeup and representing to the membership that we, you know, this isn't a, a cronied uh, group of people that are being assembled to find somebody only in our vision. We're trying to set this up so it's a vision of uh, that is reflective of a, a broader spectrum of, of membership. And then finding people who are generally well-regarded, subjective, but well-regarded amongst their peers. It doesn't make it any easier to say, you know, sorry to the, what I call the Horshacks of the world as I date myself from Wellington Cotter. <laughs> Horshack sitting in the front, the front row raising his hand to volunteer for everything. You know, we do have some clubs that have to deal with that, and it's hard to tell Horshack, um, I'm sorry, but without any objective thought behind that, constitution of that committee, it's almost impossible to tell Horshack when they raise their hand that they aren't able to serve. So putting some some uh, overview of the, the demographics along with objective thinking, which usually means that somebody who, who has served on the board or on committees in the past and we see how they work and play with others. Not 100%, but that's a pretty good test point to uh, evaluate whether they always have to have their own way or whether they can work well with others because you got to make a group decision on the search committee. So tell me about the process and some of the challenges perhaps of managing personalities that they may face. Oh, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and that can be uh, interesting. You know, we, we try to set the expectations of day one you know, it, with a very detailed timeline. Uh, so again, everybody hopefully understanding where their commitment of time is and understanding there are going to be some homework assignments, so to speak, where you've got to be evaluating data, criteria, reading uh, bios or reports or other information that we might provide. Uh, We try to lay that all out up front so that there's a clear understanding of it might be a bit of a hurry up and wait in many instances, hurry up and in the sense of we, we have to be tour, understand the target is without, you know, one size doesn't fit all in the, 
Vietnam instead of um, criteria with their new leader, someone who has good financial acuity. Almost every club needs somebody who has a good perspective on what makes a vibrant, robust food and beverage program. Almost every club needs somebody these days who understands the talent selection, retention, and development equation. Almost every club uh, needs somebody who understands how to deal with nonprofit, board, and committee makeup, the election cycling, and the appointee cycling of, of boards and committees, and how do you work with and through what we call well-intended volunteers who want to provide input, but in some cases don't have accountability because they're volunteers. And you would hope everybody understands the accountability, but it, you know it's easy to you know, throw a bomb and, and walk away because it's, it's part of your corporate uh, evaluation structure. You're a volunteer. And then lastly, uh, you know, helping to set the criteria as it relates to uh, you know, almost every club, regardless whether Yacht Club, City Club, Country Club, wants somebody who is sincere, visible, approachable, and engaging with both members and staff. So it's, it's you know, helping to set that criteria up front. And then what are the uniquenesses to our particular club that we're working with? So you know, getting people who are able to uh, really help to explain culture and uh, epitomize the culture of the club, and even if the culture needs to shift, are going to be there to help ensure that they're going to be supportive of a cultural shift. We also want people who are going to ultimately be strong advocates for whomever is ultimately selected. Because they've, they've got a lot of time uh, invested in this process, and we want them to be raving fans when they walk out who help to pave the way for success for a, a new GM covenant. And I'm sorry, I probably got off track on your on your. No, that's all right. Question, did I? No, not at all. I, actually, as you were describing it, I kept uh, drawing a visual of a jury room, in a sense, trying to deliberate. And <laughs> a question that comes to mind, as you mentioned corporate, how challenging is it to get some of these personalities who say, well, at my company, we did it this way. And now you have two egos finding uh, fighting and not getting on the same page for the greater good. Is that common? It certainly happens. Yeah, it happens. I can't, I would, would not say it happens as much as you might think in this process. Yeah, I think where it's more problematic is kind of envisioning the person that you want sitting in front of you to lead your club. It, it's not so much trying to input their idea of how we go about hiring somebody. Usually, once we go through our very deliberate process and give them confidence that it, it isn't the first rodeo, so to speak, that we've been on, and we have a good, thoughtful process, and here's why we do it this way. Uh, you know, for example, you know, many folks uh, say, well, in, in my company, we take candidates and we interview them you know, one by one. You know, one of us is, is with the candidate, then we hand him or her off to somebody else to go interview, and then we gather together uh, later on in the day and we compare notes as to what we thought. We don't do that, and the reason we don't do that is we aren't able then initially to control how somebody asks the question or to, to make sure that we're all, if it's, 
if it's all one-offs, we're not all hearing the same answer at the same time and evaluating whether we believe it or not. You know, if we all have different radar and antenna. We love, at least initially, uh, as we vet through candidates in the first round of interviews, we love having group interviews because it's the group thing that usually, like 99% of the time, comes out with the best group think outcome. That's probably where we get uh, more of the corporate, this is how we do it, uh, suggestions imposed upon us. We don't do it that way in the end because we have to control the process in, in our means because we guarantee it. So if we can't, if we don't have confidence in the process because of what I just mentioned to you, we can't guarantee it in the end. So people allow us in almost every instance to, to do that. The, the other uh, you know, criteria is that if, if you were making the decision and you stood behind it uh, because it's a corporate decision, you, know, you, you probably don't have as hard a time making an ultimate choice as you do when you're a volunteer and you're thinking about what your fellow members are going to say about this decision that you make. And it's kind of an interesting dynamic, uh, Corey, where almost always you know, somebody's thinking, well, what's my spouse going to say when they see or hear or meet this person? What's my, uh, what are my golfing buddies going to say when they see, hear, or meet this person? And, you know, I may love you know, this, this, and this, but, uh, you know, if they are, if they don't think I've done a good job here, or if they they don't like the pedigree, even though it, it, where that comes into play quite a bit is there are times when you know, everybody wants uh, the pedigree to be Augusta National on a candidate. Um, of course they do. Resume. And, and, you know, so there's cachet when you make the announcement letter to uh, the membership, here's who we've we've invited in. We've had pretty darn good success recruiting people out of the broader hospitality, not club-specific industry over the last many years. And But if there is some pushback at times, it's, well, how are we going to announce that we're bringing somebody into the club who's never worked in a club? And our point is, it's, it's all about leadership. And don't all have experiences in every aspect of the club, but we, even if we've been in the club industry our entire lives. And it's really, it all gets back to leadership and being able to you know, have the gravitas and ability to navigate all the different inputs, the staff, members, all that feedback that we get. And that transcends whether you've been groomed totally in the club industry, whether you've come up through RITS, Four Seasons, St. Regis. We've even had a few people coming from outside of what I would say a very traditional hospitality environment. Not a lot, but a few who, when we've had an open-minded search committee, can clearly see that it's all about leadership. They may have been in a, in a leadership role in a uh, nonprofit environment that wasn't hospitality-related, but you still have to be you know, hospitable and and so on. So again, I'm, I may be getting off topic a little bit, but that's that's it's kind of an interesting dynamic that we that we deal with at times in that regard. Absolutely, and leadership, as you mentioned, is everything: strategic thinking, innovation, and action. And that brings me to the CLA, the three founding club leadership alliance firms: Copland, Keebler, and Wallace McMahon Group, and Club Benchmarking 
are independent entities working together for the common good of the industry, serving clubs in all aspects of strategic planning, operations, finances, human capital, and facilities. The CLA's core values serve as a framework for the proven best practices and include informed leadership, strategic stewardship, empowered management and team, compelling member experience, and that's everything. The Club Leadership Alliance's mission is to rally club leaders to create relevant, enduring clubs. Their vision is simple, generate widespread understanding and adoption of the best practices that lead to sustained club success. Learn more at www.clubleadershipalliance.com. Welcome back to the Copland, Keebler, and Wallace Leadership Podcast. I'm Corey Saban, and we are joined by the one of the founding members, Kurt Keebler, and we are talking about search committees. So, Kurt, when you think about search committees, how much time does a search committee need to commit to be informed, effective, and ultimately successful in the process? Again, no, great question, Corey. And a little bit of it depends on the, the club and and uh, you know, where who it is that we're trying to uh, find uh, in the leadership role in the sense of are they following somebody who's retired retiring are they following somebody who's been terminated are they following somebody who's left for a, a greater role or opportunity and that has a little bit of influence on things at times because it, it will at times impact the timeline our typical search process, the search committee is constituted for about three and a half months over that period of time. I was talking before the, the, the break about uh, a little bit of a hurry up and wait exercise. There's a fair amount of work to do on the front end, identifying key characteristics, competencies, experience, background, style, and, and so on. Once that gets assembled into a position profile and is blessed by the search committee, uh, which can take, you know, that's probably, I don't know, mostly on the search chair, but it, it's a several-hour commitment by the search committee up front. Then we go a little bit quiet while we're out there uh, sourcing, recruiting, uh, essentially being the Chamber of Commerce on behalf of the, the club to go find and entice uh, candidates to take a look at the opportunity, to share with the candidates what the opportunity is all about, and so on. There's usually a five or six week period there where not a lot for the search committee to have to do but respond to our periodic updates. We then get to a very uh, important and uh, stronger time commitment effort on behalf of the search committee when we present candidates because we ask a search committee to do a very thorough analysis of a great amount of material. You know, there are the old way of doing things would be, you know, here's a resume of a candidate. Uh, take a look at that. Let me know if you if you have interest in meeting so and so. That's 20 years ago. You know, today we've got to have a lot more detailed information. We've got to go through multiple interviews with potential candidates. We assemble a great deal of information, including a in-depth uh, questionnaire that we create after meeting with a search committee and starting a search assignment that any bona fide candidate has to complete for us, along with a letter of interest, why me at this point in my career does this opportunity make sense? We, You don't further in the process as a candidate if you say, here's my resume, uh, this one is of great appeal. 
appealed to me. Uh, take a look at what I've done in my past, and I'm excited to meet you. That sort of letter of interest does not resonate with us, or and and the search committee, frankly, will never see it because somebody clearly is just fishing and doesn't have a true and compelling interest in why. You've got to explain to us why. So a search committee gets that, obviously a resume uh, questionnaire, and we do a pretty thorough summary bio of each uh, candidate that we present. So there may be, you know, if we have six candidates, there may be 150 pages worth of information that a search committee needs to di digest before we then meet to determine who from that group they are most compelled to want to meet. So it might take eight hours, ten hours to review all that, make some notes, mm. put together some on-paper evaluation and rankings, then we we go through, either in person or, or by Zoom, a very uh, thoughtful color commentary of each of those candidates, and we make some ultimate decisions on who they want to meet. So you know, hurry up, wait for five or six weeks, per, you know, I'd say hurry up, there's usually four or five days between uh, obtaining the, uh, receiving the candidate presentation and meeting with us. So you've got several days upon which to ponder and evaluate what you read about somebody before you hear all the color commentary from us. And then we've got, once that's done, uh, 10 days to two weeks before we actually then meet them because there's another uh, deep dive in the process where the candidates have to, if they're a finalist that's selected for interviews, have to do uh, portfolios, backgrounds. We do a very, we've got a couple of private investigators that do a very thorough background uh, checking effort for us. So candidates have to go through a civil background, uh, court record filing check, criminal background check, degree verification, credentials verification, driving record checks, personality behavioral assessments, presentation or uh, creation and presentation of portfolios, uh, social media checks beyond Facebook and Instagram or getting uh, you know, deep into their, their, <laughs> their, the background stuff that you and I can't necessarily sure. look at our private investigators have access to. So there's a lot of work there and then it's usually a long day or two when the uh, candidates have to uh, come in and, and the search committee goes through a very in-depth interview process. So, again, a couple of uh, hurry-up-and-wait moments throughout. Yeah, you mentioned that. I was curious when you, uh, being that you've done this for so long and you mentioned uh, the why, if you will, as they're going through the process and some people were just fishing and others obviously are not. So in your experience, when you see something on the page, what is something that jumps out at you and you say, wow, this is a person that we need to look at? Uh, you know, it can take a lot of different, um, different uh, avenues there. Certainly, we are really enthused when a candidate represents themselves so that, you know, let me put it this way, candidates who recognize that not everybody knows every club in America, including us, who probably know as many clubs as anybody in America. So understanding that I, if I'm coming from, even if I'm coming from Augusta National, you know, I want to assume as I'm reading that, that I, you know, I know Augusta National, but I know no metrics. And that's probably not a good example because they don't share their metrics either. But uh, I'm coming from, you know, Atlanta Athletic Club, uh, maybe a nationally recognized U. 
U.S. Open and other championships. I, but many people don't know that it's got 45 holes of golf, multiple campus clubhouses, whatever it is, 1,400 members, and $23 million worth of gross revenues and so on. We like somebody who understands they've got to paint a picture. And then beyond that, why am I? Why should I be compelled to want to compete? What have you actually achieved that is represented on your resume that I, I then, as the, the recruiter, can go back and verify? And are they relevant metrics that you're providing? Because we, you know, we have people, for example, Corey, who say uh, during the five years that I've been at my club, I've increased food and beverage growth volume by 53 percent, which, if you don't know where you started. Exactly. You know, may sound may exactly. sound great, but if it went from a hundred thousand to one hundred and fifty three thousand in the club world, that's about as small an operation as you can probably have. So if you don't tell the full story, it it's suspect. And I think too many of us have created a resume at some point in time and then we add to it if we're interested in looking at a job, but it might have been eight years ago the last time we added to it, and I never go back, and, and many of them don't go back and read or update where they used to be, so the former job is still conveyed in present tense rather than in past tense, and the metrics that they used back then you know, aren't necessarily as relevant as the metrics we expect to learn from somebody today. Or they've got more of a job description in their resume rather than an achievement. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we, we just like people to have that objective, uh, sort of that emotional intelligence to understand what folks are looking for in the decision-making role with us being the first line of, of clubs hire us to do the initial vetting on their behalf and to do the initial recruitment on their behalf. So if it doesn't make sense to us, search committee probably never sees it. You know, you mentioned telling a good story. Now, you're not going to share it because you're too humble, but I'm going to tell everyone that Copland, Keebler, and Wallace has proudly supported the mission of Tee It Up for the Troops since it was founded in 2005. And why this is a great story is because they're making a difference. Private clubs across the country can support America's veterans through the mission of Tee It Up for the Troops in many different ways, including hosting a fundraising event, encouraging member sponsorship, and by donating a foursome for their auctions. We encourage you to learn more about how you can support their efforts by going to teeitupforthetroops.org and making a difference not only for the troops, but showing your members the value of giving back. Kurt, you know, we're talking a great deal about search efforts. Let's assume that we've completed a search effort. What, if any, roles or responsibility then does the search committee have after a new leader has been hired? Another great question, Corey. I think the most times the search committee's primary work is uh, completed once they make their recommendation to the board and the board uh, ultimately affirms that recommendation. What we whether it's the search committee or a different, uh, differently constituted committee, what we think is really helpful, and not in every instance, but in many instances where we're trying to ensure smooth transitional, we always want smooth transitions, but sometimes there's a clear set of choppy navigable, <laughs> choppy yet navigable, navigable 
tough word to say. Yes. Yeah, it is a tough word to say. Um, and I haven't had enough coffee at this point. So, <laughs> uh, the, uh, the, uh, it, it's helpful to have, I said this earlier, but it's helpful to have strong advocacy after the decision's made. You know, we're euphoric about the ultimate decision. We've had a very good process. We really believe we've come through it with a good outcome. And then everybody goes back to doing what they've, they've done, youth in the club and so on, um, which we get. But, you know, we, we certainly hope that every new GM, GM COO is, um, you know, has enough knowledge, understanding, motivation, and, and so on to help to figure out you know, where they need to spend time and why as they onboard themselves. But it's helpful to have kind of a transition committee in, again, not 100%, but many cases, so that I can just have somebody two, three, four people who I, for the first few months, have an opportunity to meet with once a week, twice a week, and in the meantime, pick up the phone and say, tell me why we do this. You know, somebody's got some knowledge of the club, because almost every time somebody coming in with fresh eyes starts to see things that you wonder why. And sometimes because nobody's ever questioned why we do it that way. It just becomes tradition when, in fact, it's just a bad habit. Other times, it's, there's some really good background for it. You know, sometimes you've got staff members who can help you understand that, but other times there are you know, member practices or uh, behavioral things that are accepted but don't make a lot of sense. And it's really helpful to have somebody who helps to be a sounding board. I think it's also really helpful to have a transition committee in many cases of, of, of some you know, confidence that that will start to feed back to you. you know, we're, we're hearing you know, that not enough people are, are meeting you, you know, as me, the new manager. So that could help me to create a better you know, onboarding engagement plan and cycling. And, and I was going to ask you that. I was going to ask you that. Yeah. What are three takeaways to ensure that a new leader has a successful onboarding? Because the onboarding is everything once they come on board. So what are three yep. things, takeaways that people can put in place? Well, I, I think the, the two most obvious that may you know, supersede there even being a third one is you got to get to know your staff and you got to get to know your membership. So I'm a big advocate that not every club can you do this because some are too big, but most aren't. Most are able to you know, you're able to manage this. But you know, spending time with those two constituency groups to get to know them. You know, your staff has to know who you are and that you care about them and that you know their names and you know a little bit about them. So, you know, I love it when people have focus group sessions both with members and staff for the first few months that they're on board and likely a couple of times a week. I'm going to meet with 10 members of the staff from the housekeeping crew to my CFO or my other key department heads. It's going to be a mix and match. We're going to have lunch. We're going to talk about, you know, tell me about yourself. Tell me about what we're doing. There are many managers who have set up 15 or 20-minute increments and have one-on-ones with every single staff member. You know what it feels like to be a a dish machine operator and to have the GM, you know, once you get over the anxiety, perhaps, of, I got to go meet the GM, but 
have the GM now spend some personal time? Tell me about yourself. What do you like? That's everything. Here? What could you do better? That's a big deal. Uh, same thing with members. I'm a big advocate. You and I know a number of managers uh, down here in South Florida who have utilized the, uh, sincerely utilized the technique of having multiple focus group sessions for the first several months that they're on board, inviting, inviting, not setting up coffee with Kurt and sign up if you want to be here. That doesn't work very well because all the naysayers sign up and want to you know, take your head off. But 10 people who somebody personally reaches out and invites them. We want you to come and have coffee with Kurt at 2 o'clock in the afternoon on Tuesday. Can you make it? And you, you go down the list until you get to 10 people. And then we want you to you know come and have coffee with Kurt Friday morning at 8 o'clock. You cover it. You know, two or three times a week for the first couple of months that you're on board. One, it, it allows members to get to know you. It allows you to get to know members. And you tell them it by invitation, it isn't set up so you have all naysayers or all positive boosters. It's usually a pretty good uh, you know, perspective. And, and, you know, I truly believe 80% of members are very positive about their club and very strong advocates about their club. And they will often supersede the naysayers that sit in the room. And when, when the naysayers want to start taking shots at you or the past regime or the board or somebody else. But, you know, we call you 45 minutes, and you do it different times during the week. So you cover those working people or those people who only use the club certain days of the week, and it gets, uh, it gets covered pretty nicely. That way, we're going to spend 45 minutes, want to know what you like about what we're doing, what do you think we could do better, you know, what ideas or suggestions you have and ask me anything you know unless it's a personnel or a legal matter you got the horse here in front of you and I'll tell you anything you, you want to know if I don't know I'll run it down and I'll get back to you but we're only going to take 45 minutes of your time it's a great onboarding technique that I don't think is utilized as much as it should be we often write that into a, a hundred day plan with somebody coming on board and then all the other you know administrative tasks by you know, looking at contracts, looking at uh, performance reviews, you know, all of those basic things that you hope to be doing, but never to the exclusion or to the, uh, the pri- never to take priority over getting to know your members and staff first. Kurt, thank you for sharing all of this wonderful information about search committees and just a valuable conversation. Well, always nice talking with you, Corey, and, and thank you so much for uh, being such a great uh, leader to pull these things out of us. We think about them, but we don't articulate it as often as we should in some cases. Well, it's my pleasure working with the Copland, Keebler, and Wallace team, and they are the most trusted name in executive search and consulting. They deliver what they promise and bring an unmatched process, persistence, and presence in the industry. For Copland, Keebler, and Wallace, it's not just their business. It's their passion. Learn more at www.kknw.com. On behalf of Kurt Keebler, I'm Corey Sabin. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Copland, Keebler, and Wallace Leadership Podcast.